Hi, and welcome once again to From the Center, a podcast by the Center for Western Studies. I'm Jack Val, on faculty at the Center for Western Studies, joined as always by my friend and colleague, the director of the Center for Western Studies, John Hodges. Sir, how you doing? I'm doing well, thank you, Jack. I've just been looking through some of the uh, innards of my new piano, and I find that it has... Uh, some work to be done the on poor it. Poor innards. I'm glad you finished that sentence. <laughs> Looking through the innards, what? Oh, again. <laughs> of my piano? Yes, yeah, the poor thing. It does, it, it, it does the job. Um, yeah. I, I, look, you know what they say about gift horses, right? You don't look yeah. gift pianos in the mouth, no. that kind of thing. So I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful for it. And I think it'll be good for some of the things that I need to do with it. Uh, we're working on a musical, as you know, and I have to do some orchestrations coming up. So I think it's going to be a help to me there. It is also practically Arcadia outside. It mm, is, it's beautiful, isn't it? It is gorgeous, and I have yeah. the best view. I'm, like, facing the windows, and I can just see out into the woodland realm. You'll see the deer walk through probably later on. And fall has sprung, as they say. <laughs> it is finally, finally feels nice and cool outside, even with the sun out. It's gorgeous. And it's Yeah, it's day. really beautiful. We just put another bird feeder out there, and we find that we get little, beautiful little birds, little yellow birds and little... There's a titmouse couple that comes and, and uh, nice. eats, the, eats the seeds there. We're very glad to have them. My students wanted permission to eat outside for lunch. They did. Very nice. <laughs> well, you know, last week um, mm-hmm. the, uh, the uh, Attorney General Barr gave a rather interesting speech. He was speaking at the law school at Notre Dame, Notre Dame University. Uh, and uh, I was fascinated with it. Um, much of it, I thought, was very sound and good and something that uh, I posted then on our website or on our Facebook page anyway uh, to let people know about it because I was sure that not many people would hear it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I also went and read the, what I knew were going to be the oppositions to it and uh, – I think uh, I sent them to you, so you've seen them now too. And yes. The, the, the point of his talk, I think, was um, that uh, Christianity actually plays a big role in the public square, uh, in the founding of our country and in the continuation of our country. And that uh, actually I think he, he, gives, he gave a very uh, sound and thoughtful theological argument that mm-hmm. human beings actually can't be free and we're always about liberty, right? We're all mm-hmm. about liberty here in the United States, freedom. Um, but we can't actually be free unless we have some kind of interior restraint. Yeah, his distinction about uh, self-governance in yes. American terms is not simply the people rule themselves politically, but they also rule themselves Morally, they have an internal governance over their passions and their appetites. That's right. And I think it's fair to say that whether we think things have declined since the 50s or improved, we should all agree that in a plurality like our country, we tend, since we disagree about religion, religious questions, so the interior restraints are going to be different for different people. What we find we have to depend on is the exterior law. Yes. And so uh, the republic itself um, uh, and the the interaction that we have on the level of politics becomes the most important really to everybody because that's where these restrictions are going to be established. Right. 
The less the restraining force is within you, the more and more it has to be without you. It seems that that's a normal, a human, uh, a human thing. Uh, it has happened in other uh, centuries and other uh, governments around the world, all all throughout the history of man. I think the more restraint we are able to do from the inside, the less restraint we have to have on the outside. I heard somebody say one time, "If you don't train your children to know right and wrong, the police are going to have to do it for you." Right. That makes some sense, right? Because they're the next, they're the next sort of restraint. <laughs> if they don't learn to restrain themselves, then the law is going to have to restrain them. So I think what Barr was after in his speech to begin with was that notion, and that's a that's a notion that needs to be spoken of. I think and sure. reminded if if. You know, if a Christian wants to encourage for there to be revival of the Christian faith in the United States, if that's what the Christian really wants, one way would be to simply go out and tell everybody, you know, God loves you and and uh, you need to convert and, and, and follow him, you know, accept sure. his gift and follow him. And the, and the presentation of the gospel is essential. But sometimes, and I think our country is a good example, sometimes... Uh, the people are so different about the way they take the authority of Scripture, for example, or the authority of anyone in church, uh, that they that they no longer can be compelled or convinced or persuaded by um, by by a quote from the Bible, say. Mm-hmm. So there has to be some kind of middle ground, human ground, where people actually try and engage with one another. And that's where the fight is going on, I think, today, in that sort of public square where everybody holding different views about God um, have to make a, a, a civilization work. So how do we go about persuading there? The, the opposition wants to say your Christianity is actually in the way. We need to actually make that more personal, more private. So you take it out of the public square and we engage with each other at some other level. But it's very difficult, isn't it, for a real Christian to separate his faith from his actions. Yeah, it's not like a coat you can just take off and put on depending on what environment you're stepping into. That's right. It's part of who you are. Um, Yeah, this thing generated a lot of brouhaha, at least for a little while. I don't know what's going on now. Uh, It's either like the most important speech Attorney General has ever said... Or it's the worst speech in the history of American politics. Like, you know, it's like either it's, you know, the, the second coming of Christ or it's Satan itself. It's like how we basically work ourselves in America. Um, one of the issues was people saying that, you know, he's trying to uh, get, he's, he's advocating for the government to respect an establishment of religion, which is a violation of the First Amendment. The government can't do that, which is not what he was Doing. I mean, if you listen to what he was saying or read what he was saying, there's a video and there's a transcript of it. I clearly wasn't saying the government should, like, advocate for Catholicism only, but that it shouldn't get in the way of Catholicism being practiced. And we could probably say Christian liberty itself being practiced. Right. All right. So it's the other half of the statement. The, uh, um, it shall uh, not respect establishment of religion nor prohibit the free exercise thereof. That's right. And that, that's what he was basically talking the about. Two, the two phrases in the Constitution that really apply are the establishment clause they talk about in that amendment and the uh, free exercise clause. Mm. Yeah, that's right. So, which is it? Is he establishing religion or is he 
uh, calling for the free exercise. Well, I think that's part of the tension, and uh, that if anybody really seriously thinks about both the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause together, there is always a tension there, because for me, the tension usually revolves around what is the meaning of free exercise thereof? Right. How do we actually exercise? Because I think there's a lot of people who would agree that, yes, the government cannot interfere with the free exercise of religion. But for them, the free exercise of religion means exclusively what happens in your churches. You know, the government can't come in and tell you uh, what kind of scripture you can use or what the official sermon is or something like that. Right. Or something they might right. do in, like, official Chinese churches. Like, they're, they're like state Christian, see the quotation marks, they use with a hand, churches in China right, whose right. sermons and stuff have to be approved yeah, by the government. Yeah. We, we don't have that, right? In other words, it's like whatever happens in your sanctuary, that's where like it can't be prohibited. But once you step out into that much contested and much controversial public square, mm-hmm. where it's not just you and other Christians— but it's you and people who aren't Christians or you and Christians who wildly disagree with you about political issues or just whatever. It's the plurality, mm-hmm. right? It's the plurality of people. It's the pluralist society that we have. And in the public square, the government can't be shown to uh, show favor, mm-hmm. right? It can't act like it's, it's playing favorites with anybody. That's, true that's, that's how it's come to be interpreted. The hardest thing, I think, is to convey to people how it is that Christianity actually served as the foundation for the very desire for freedom in the public square that the people altogether now want. Mm-hmm. So it's what they're asking for uh, the Christian is, in a sense, to only work on the 21st floor of the building that they've, they've built because the, the foundation of the building that everybody's taking for granted actually didn't come from a plurality. It mm-hmm. came from a Christian mind or you could right. say a Judeo-Christian mind, right. which, by the way, I find okay to say, I, I, especially when you're talking about uh, the differences between a moral biblical kind of mindset of virtue about virtue and how and the nature of human beings and and nature of sin and all that stuff as opposed to a completely uh unchristian or sec- some people use the word secular to describe unchristian yeah. i don't like that word exactly but that's kind of what it means to people so i'll use it for the moment mm-hmm. um a secular version that is that excludes christianity and the and to live your life without any kind of relationship yeah. to to the bible but in doing that if that's the if those are the the two sides, then I think Judeo-Christian is a perfectly good thing. I think you'll find, we'll find that the Jews and the Christians are really on the same side in that yeah. issue, don't you? Yeah. No, it's a little like saying, you know, Western civilization, and people say, well, does that mean you're excluding the Eastern Orthodox? Well, no, I'm not excluding the, I'm, ex- I'm thinking the line isn't between, <laughs> the line isn't between Rome and Greece, the line is between Rome and Greece on one side and, you know, the Hindus on the other side, right. that kind of thing. You can't even exclude, you know, Africa and the Middle East from Western civilization. Of course civilization. not, not from Western say, civilization. I, anyways, that's another discussion, but... But that's what yeah. I'm saying. So that's why, I, I, for, the, for our, our readers' sake, our listeners' sake, I, I think it's good to use Judeo. When we say Judeo-Christian, I don't find that there's any problem there in this kind of discussion. Yeah. Everybody knows that the Jews and the Christians have certain things that they disagree about too, right? Mm-hmm. But there are plenty of things in this issue that we're on the same side about. So, but what I'm thinking is, how is it that you can, con, con, uh, how, you, how can you convince a person who says, we want a, as Richard John Newhouse used to say, a naked public square, a public square without any kind of religious uh, infection. Mm-hmm. 
How can you have that when the very notion of a public square and individual um, responsibility for uh, and, and, and and uh, and uh, we the people as the highest authority in the in the land all those kinds of ideas that everyone takes for granted come really not from a, a pluralistic world they come from a christian world it wouldn't have happened had it not been from a christian world because yeah. the assumptions that we have about the nature of man and the nature of of uh, virtue and uh, uh, and why it is we think it's good to have a checks and balances kind of arrangement uh, because man is sinful and that leads back to the idea of that, you know, the Bible teaches that man is sinful and that, they, that God has offered this solution for his sinfulness. I mean, there's all kinds of – I used tensions earlier. There's a lot of tensions in the American experiment because you feel like it was trying to do a crazy balancing act of like yeah. a whole bunch of things. Even in its very inception, it was abnormal, if I can use that word. Uh, even as an Enlightenment project, because as an Enlightenment project, it actually had like one foot in the new world of like liberal values of individualism mm-hmm. and all this, and another foot squarely in the old pre-modern world of you know uh, the moral order and you know uh, English common law, which had been around for a long time. So our inception was also a weird balancing act of things, and it just feels like this balancing act of things. And I suppose as long as there was a moral hegemony, if I could put it that way, mm-hmm. over the country. There was a sort of an ostensibly Christian-esque glaze over everything. Then it's okay because everybody sort of agrees on the first principles, right? And then we can work it out there. But there was, I feel like there was a question that was always going to be raised about what happens when eventually the, plural, the pluralistic society kind of necessarily erodes away the very idea of like a That's first right. religious principle. Right. Well, right. then what do you do? Right. And that creates, well, it creates certain tensions. I think it's connected to like, a, a, like the Christian baker issue. Hmm. A, a Christian baker refuses to bake a cake for a gay wedding. They'll bake any other cake or whatever. Or if they want to buy like a ready-made cake for it, they could do it, but they won't make one for them, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. they can't, they don't want to be shown to supporting something they think is sinful. Okay. Mm-hmm. What exactly is the government supposed to do? Right. If right. it says you are wrong and you ought to bake them a cake and not exclude them based on your religious beliefs, are they negating the free exercise of religion? On the other hand, if they look at the homosexual couple and say, you're wrong, you have no right to make this Christian cook something for you that's against their beliefs, are they showing favoritism because it's a religion? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when you phrase it that way, that's the tension between the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause that happens when you don't have a, you know, a plurality of different views under a uniformity of like some first principles or something like that. Well, I think it's safe to say that that one can be fixed. I think that one can be addressed because uh, there's got to be a difference between the government saying this is this is the way that all of us need to be and we shouldn't stop this baker from exercising his his beliefs in other words if the if the government had told everybody you have to bake a cake or you can't bake a cake they would be establishing themselves but if it's the baker that says i can't do this in good conscience and the government is only saying we need to allow him to follow his conscience he's they're not really buying into the faith itself they're just 
at, at, at administering this this fairness doctrine or whatever right. uh, for everybody. So I, don't, I think it's I think it's a there's a, there's a good distinction there. If the if the initiation of the the the, the uh, Christian concept came from the f- government itself uh, and insisted that everybody take that on, I could argue. Uh, that they're that they're establishing something. I could make an argument. I still wouldn't maybe believe it, but I'd make the argument. But in this case, I don't think that's what they're doing. And so it's it's got to be that one has to be a, a free exercise. Right. Now with the with the Bill Barr thing, it gets a little muddier, doesn't it? Because he's not just a baker; he's no. the Attorney General of the United yeah. States, <laughs> right? So yeah. and he's saying this is the way the country ought to go. Yeah. That's a little thornier because now it's coming from an authority figure, and that's, I think, why it is that they start saying, you know, establishment clause, establishment clause. The worst state, the worst speech in the press. <laughs> was that the New Yorker it article? Was. That it said was the that? New Yorker. Oh, yeah, here it is right here. Uh, uh, Jeffrey Tubin in the New Yorker starts off his article. William P. Barr just gave the worst speech by an attorney general of the United States in modern history. Wow. Subtle. Always subtle. Always subtle. Yeah, Tubin modern is history always. Of, uh, from the 1500s forward. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, dear me. Let me give you another quote. Here's another quote from that very same article. Historically illiterate, morally obtuse, and willfully misleading, the Mm. speech portrays religious people in the United States as beset by a hostile band of, quote, secularists. There's that word. Uh, Actually, religion is thriving here, as it should be in a free society, but Barr claims the mantle of victimhood in order to press for a right-wing political agenda. So... What do you think? Is it a is it is is it that they that Christians are oppressed and 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 abused in this in this life today, or is this just a a, a play for political power from the right? I I mean, <laughs> that's a tougher one. It's a tougher one. I was about to say either I was about to say two contradictory things. I was going to say it's it's both and, and then I was going to say it's a false dichotomy. Which uh, yeah. in that I think. There's some truth to both statements, and I think there's more to the story than either statement is told. So one of the things people could have gotten out of Bill Barr's statement, which he didn't really explicitly say, but it's kind of implicitly there. He said something about, like, you know, in the 1960s, some sort of vice was at a certain percentage, and then in the 1990s, it was at a even higher, and now today it's like quadrupled or something like that. Oh, it was uh, uh, out-of-wedlock birth. Out-of-wedlock birth, right? right? Which is, a if I could put it this way, that's not disrespectful. It's a common go-to of, like, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. Christian politicians and Christian policy and cultural people, you know, the, the children born outside of marriage. Right. You know? right. And it's this common talking point about, the moral decline of America in the last 50 or 60 years. That's a sign of decline. It's a sign of decline. Sure. And I've, you know, I've heard it plenty of times in the circles I walk into, and I know that other circles I've walked into, they absolutely hate that declaration because if you put it in its most straw manish form, Mm-hmm. Which sometimes the people who put forward the argument don't give you much choice than to see it in the straw manish form. But never mind. If you put it in the straw man-ish form, it's that the 1950s was some halcyon golden age of American morality, mm-hmm. and ever since then, you know, the dirty hippies and secularists made us slowly slide into Gomorrah, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Which you know, you hear that, and people who are millennial or people who are on the left, whether they roll their eyes or get more apoplectic. Because, oh, the 1950s, huh? Like when Jim Crow was still around or mm-hmm. women still couldn't get jobs in high places. 
uh, I, I may be historically illiterate on this point. I think lynchings were probably still going on, you know, in some level. Is like they would point to things where no, it was not a moral golden age. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And they're not wrong, and it is a mistake on a side issue. It's a mistake to talk about golden ages because there was only one golden age, and that's Eden, and it's not coming back. Right. Right. There's something new coming. So, but yeah, it's you know, it's not wrong to talk about this idea that a golden age is kind of a myth. Yeah. Because there were bad things in the past. Why did out-of-wedlock births increase? Yes. Why, did, why is the, oh, he mentioned the opioid ec- epidemic killing like 70,000 people a year or something like that? It says it's, uh, that's right. That's what says he said. More people every year than we lost in the entirety of the Vietnam War, which is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, he, he mentioned some things as like, look, okay, maybe if you don't buy the moral decline narrative, there is still things that over the last few decades are not good that have increased. And even some of the bads that maybe are decreasing, like I've heard people bring up, you know, that abortion rates have been declining over the last mm-hmm. 10 or 15 years. What if the causes for that are not the best causes? What if it's not that people are starting to choose life? What if it's that people are just, ha- just aren't having babies anymore? You know, they're having right. fewer and fewer children. And actually, our population rate is going down. So the moral decline argument is complicated because... There are some ways in which we have declined in some ways we have and in other ways that we've stayed the same. Mm-hmm. As far as persecution goes, adjacent to that is the idea that with moral decline has become an abandonment of Christian principle, and with the abandonment of Christian principle is hostility towards Christians. Right? So that's sort of the, the other side of the coin to the whole like moral decline argument is that the society is growing more and more hostile to Christians, it's growing more and more hostile to their faith and their belief, and there are people who are willing to set up systems that oppress them and take away their rights and stuff and so on and so forth. And then that's going on even now. Is it a political ploy or is it for realsies, as the kids say? <laughs> um, well, it's, to the first point, is it a political ploy? It sometimes is hard not to feel like it's a political ploy because it is kind of a Flight 93 attitude that has been around think since like the moral majority came about that the world is based the country is basically going to hell in a handbasket and we need to stop it now by voting for these policies and these presidents and mm-hmm. you can, it's not too much of a leap to after a generation of that there are politicians who will use that kind of language to get your vote mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. there are you know uh, leaders and thought leaders who will use that kind of language to push people in a certain way so sure it can be used as a political ploy is it actively actually happening? I think that one's dicier because we have to define what do we mean by persecution? I mean, you know, there are plenty of Christians around the world that are being driven out of their homes and machine gunned in the street or like slaughtered and genocide or have to hide their churches. Right. 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 Where we, you know, you and I can like, especially in the Bible belt, we can like walk around and nobody's going to mess with us because we're a Christian. We don't have to wear like cross armbands and to identify who we are and we get like denied services or something like that. At the same time, a Christian baker is being dragged before the Supreme Court and if they decide against them, that sets a precedent for all Christian businesses that could cause them all to shut down. And so are those ones that fit in those particular categories shut down. Our, a friend of ours who's Catholic, you know, gave several examples about how you know, in Massachusetts, uh, a law was passed requiring all it was uh, adoption agencies. Adoption agencies. Yeah, they were they were told they were told that they would have to allow uh, adoptions from their agency to homosexual couples, and they said we're Catholic and we think that goes against our principles, so we can't do that. And instead of accommodating them, 
the uh, law insisted that you know all all adoption agencies in Massachusetts would have to work under the same laws, and that meant allowing for adoptions to homosexual couples, and that meant that the the Catholic bunch had to shut down. Yeah, and there's the same issue. And they were the largest group in the state. Right, they were one of the biggest ones and most well-known, and they had to close down. Same thing could happen with hospitals or Catholic hospitals. They get required to offer abortion services. Right. And they're not going to do that. Or pharmacies having to give out uh, morning-after pills or something like that. Something, yeah. Yeah, that stuff happens, and there are people who have managed to pull Christian business people into courts, including the Supreme Court, to force them to give services to something, which has all kinds of issues with it. So here's the thing. We're not being rounded up and dragged in the streets and gunned down. And we're, we, we have our own schools and our own universities, yep. and we have our own things, and we can go found them, and we can still go do that. So it doesn't feel like persecution, but what is it? Like, what's mm-hmm. the right way to talk about it? Because maybe, I think there's, I think, and maybe this is just my uh, uh, wimpy millennial self coming out of here, <laughs> I think there's got to maybe persecution and open hostilities and assault by a band of secularists is all too bombastic. Mm-hmm. You know, like we know what persecution is. We've seen it around the world and whatever that wherever it's at, it ain't exactly happening here. Or if it is happening here, it's like extremely rare, isolated, and most average people, including average secularists, would find it ridiculous. So what we need maybe is a word that uh, that describes what's happening, but that isn't quite so uh, totalitarian. Yeah, like accurately describes it instead of uh, for the purposes of actual description and not just like trying to get the emotional punch. Because I think persecution has a particular emotional punch to it, and that lends credibility to the accusation that we're. Uh, really thinking in political terms, and this yeah. is just a way to get votes. And yeah. Like that. yeah, I mean that people, people on the by the way, people on the other side of this get ridiculous. Like the claim that Christians are like uh, that religion is flourishing in this country is not the same as saying Christianity is flourishing because mm. Christianity is one religion mm. among many, and religion may be flourishing because more people are coming over here. Well, I think I think human beings on both ends of the spectrum politically are kind of given to hyperbole, don't you think? Yeah, I know. It's, but it's like that. It's a, co- a common hyperbole needs to constantly be smacked against. Yeah. Another one is that Christianity is the most protected class in the entire country, which is ridiculous, even on its own terms. I mean, if you're yeah. going to be more specific, maybe Protestantism, but Catholics? I mean, Catholics have... Catholics have certainly been persecuted. Been but a- I think Christian... I guess that's the right word. Um, Certainly, um, they've, well, the thing is this. I, I, there's a great little uh, bit of writing from um, um, Thomas Sowell. Mm-hmm. Thomas Sowell wrote uh, extensively in various books about this idea of um, the, the relationship between the majority in any country, in any way majority, uh, and the minority. Mm-hmm. And w- it's easy, I think, for us to think if there's a group that's in the minority and has to put up with some kind of um, disagreeable pressure in some way or the other or another, I'm trying to find a neutral, more neutral term for that. Right. Uh, genuinely, there, um, 
a lot of times it's not so much because the the majority despises them it's that the majority that human beings when they're in the majority simply think one way and they go with that and the people in the minority have to kind of trail along behind and put up with a lot of things they might not choose themselves yeah. uh soul likes to to go to take it out of the sort of hotbed of uh, american politics and society and and look at the statistics in other countries and he looks at the relationship say between uh the chinese minority in indonesia uh versus the majority of indonesians um and the same kind of dynamic happens you see um the same thing in in uh, european countries or eastern europe where uh where uh I mean, or in Asia, where one group is in the majority, the the smaller group simply has to put up with some things that they might not choose to put up with. And they can make it look like they're being oppressed by the majority. Mm -hmm. But in America, there's the freedom to actually complain about those sorts of things people our country was established with certain rules like that 10 the first 10 amendments of the constitution that were in a sense to protect minorities from the majority yeah so we understood on the front end that uh there was going to have to be a freedom of speech even if everybody in the country wanted to go one way and when one person wanted to be able to say an opposing opinion he was going to have to be free to do that so in a sense, the Bill of Rights are actually looking after that minority. So we have that in the back of our minds that minorities need to be protected sometimes, you see. Yeah. So nowadays, I think it's, it's sort of commonplace to say, well, here's a minority that's being mistreated in one way or the other. Uh, something's happening to them that's not happening to the majority. And as a result, we can point at that and say that's a, a terrible thing. Well, the Catholics, I think, have been treated that way in this country. Certainly the Jews have been treated that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then uh, it, when the majority is in one party or the other, the other party gets treated kind of badly, yeah. right? Yeah. So certainly uh, African-Americans have been treated badly and, and women occasionally, although they don't think have ever been in the minority. But never mind, you get the point. Yeah, I get the point. So um, I think it's wise for us to discern whether there is actual oppression and and uh and uh, uh uh what's the word we've been using disagreeable pressure um yeah but i mean instead of that, persecution <laughs> we should be discerning about whether there is uh actual persecution and hatred and all that going on or whether it's just the sort of way of the world when yeah. when a group is in the minor- minority they have to end up putting up with things uh, but certainly the Catholics have been that way, the Jews have been that way, the blacks have been that way, the, the, uh, uh, the uh, Latin, uh, Latinos uh, certainly have been treated that way. But in past d- decades, it's been the Italians yeah. or it's been the, the Irish, right? right? Or So people just treat each other badly. Sorry, we're, all, <laughs> we're, we're fallen creatures and there are certain dynamics that happen with majorities and minorities. I, think, I recommend people read uh, Thomas Sowell on this to get a little bit of perspective on... Uh, on that issue, but in the meantime, our question is: Is the is the uh, attorney general's speech uh, an establishment of religion, or is it a, 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 a simply an exercise of religion? Mm-hmm. And when somebody who has clearly the the beliefs that the attorney general does, he sounds like a very orthodox Catholic yeah. uh, fellow. Um, is it right, good, and just for him to bring that uh, that belief into his 
uh, exercise of his position as the attorney general. I think it is. But I think it is for this reason. I don't think anyone is as able as we think we are to separate our beliefs from the way that we act them out. Right. I don't know how it is that a a society that's as pluralistic as ours today could ignore the fact that the reality of that pluralism has been made possible only by one of the particular views being enacted, Mm. you see. I think think we take for granted the Christian roots of the things that we strive for today. And that means that we have to rethink this idea about what he means by establishment of religion. How does plurality, or that desire for plurality, or the freedom of conscience and all that stuff, how does that arrive out of a Christian root? Good right? question. Because some people would want to point to the usual boogeymen of, like, you know, wars of religion or the Inquisition or oh yeah, or sure. crusades, which is a dumb, a dumb thing to point in this particular context, but they'll bring it up anyway. Sure. Of like, sure. how could something that led to wars to Massive intolerance of different forms of opinion about things. How could that possibly have created a desire for liberty of conscience? Mm-hmm. Which, mm-hmm. putting aside for a second, a historical and lazy understandings of these big historical events like the Inquisition or the wars of religion, and definitely the Crusades. What is the response to that? Like, how does uh, respect for plurality and a desire for liberty of conscience, how does that arrive out of Christian principles or even mm-hmm. Judeo-Christian principles, if we want to put them that way? Well, first, I think we have to say that if there are good things about a way of thinking, that doesn't exclude the, the idea that the very people who claim to believe those things won't live them out right. perfectly. So... It may very well be that Christianity teaches something that Christians don't follow, mm-hmm. if you see what I mean. And I think that's the history of the West right there. It does, well, here's my point. The fact that people don't live the thing out perfectly doesn't negate the value or the profundity of the, the Christian faith itself, right? Mm-hmm. And, of course, all of us who are Christians are striving to be like Jesus He's the example, not us. And we acknowledge that we're hypocrites and that we don't do everything right and that we fall and fail and so on. So anyway, it's a, it's a bit of a red herring, I think, to say, does Christianity actually establish uh, a, 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 a free society like we're intending to have here <laughs> when it also seemed to have been the history of Christianity to, that's blood-soaked and, and mm-hmm. unjust and so on? It's a bit of a red herring to say that. It's not completely. I mean, you have to ask the question, but you can't simply say because it has been less than perfect in the past, that means it's not valuable today. If That's the, just a preliminary idea. But right. then beyond that, there are two things about the, the orthodox faith. And when I say orthodox, of course, I mean small o orthodox, the, yeah. the true Christianity uh, that all Catholics and Easterns and Protestants would agree to. There are two things that Christianity teaches that are essential uh, in the mind of the founders to to establish our country. One of them was that man is sinful, and that that means he's rotten to the core. He's he's got uh, he's not to be trusted with absolute authority, and that's why some of the checks and balances were established in our country. But the other thing is this: that for Christianity to flourish, it has to be embraced freely. It can't be coerced. You can't make somebody a Christian. You can't hold a sword to their throat and say, get baptized. 
just doesn't work. It's not the real thing. So the best thing for the, the uh, expansion of Christianity is to actually allow for the people to make free choices. Mm-hmm. So those two things together make up, the, I think, the foundation of our country, really. Uh, you, can't, you can't allow too much power into the hands of any one person. And at the same time, you can't allow a small group of people in Washington to dictate to everybody else in the country. You've got to have some, the, the highest authority in the land has to be the people themselves. Right. That's why the Constitution starts, we the people. And not we the president or we the government. Or congressional or we the, Congress. Or exactly, exactly. So those two things are essential, I think. And, and look what happens in a country that embraces those two things. We get a, a general disposition, not necessarily by, by faith, because not everybody's a Christian, but we get a general disposition that allows for people to make free choices and then trusts that those free choices are going to actually lead the country uh, in a good direction. Mm. Uh, and so, so we find even people who are no longer anywhere near Christian in their, in their hearts still arguing for uh, the benefits of freedom, the benefits of uh, a public square that where we can debate and discuss things. Is it possible, though, even if plurality in the respect of individual conscience and all that is a product of Christianity, is it too far-fetched to postulate that that was kind of a, I don't know, it, it was a way to postulating it is clearly something that only Christians could have postulated. But it's a postulate that was a ticking time bomb because the only logical way a, you know, everybody's free of their own conscience to make their own decisions and we have to build a society around that. The only way that can go is eventually the demand for the naked public square, mm-hmm. which necessarily precludes Christianity being, Christian principles being the foundational or overriding principle, mm-hmm. which will necessarily lead to those principles no longer even informing the public square. that they form. In other words, there's a necessary kind of contradiction that comes out of all of this, which we point out, which Barr points out, that all of our systems of government, the values and liberties we hold to, including the idea of the value of the individual and the value of individual choice and individual conscience, all those things come straight from our Judeo-Christian heritage, arguably even strictly Christian heritage. Mm-hmm. Okay, fine. But it seems like if our Christian heritage was going to postulate a public square where everybody is free of conscience, that that would necessarily end in the Christian principles being rejected because at some point the consciousnesses are at the very least not inevitably that they're going to be but there is a vastly open possibility that they will oh yeah because if it really is open conscience and free conscience then it is open and free conscience including the ones that say we don't want christian principles or which amounts to the same thing christian principles are just one other voice in the crowd they're not the fundamental thing that actually shapes and gives shape to the public square Right. So, well, two things come to mind. Go ahead. First of all, um, I think it's not simply that there's a natural erosion of Christian principles. I think, and Barr actually does make this point too. He says it's not just uh, a decay of our of our world, uh, Christian world. It's uh, it's a it's a, a conscious choice by those who disagree with it to try and snuff it out. Mm-hmm. That's where a lot of the debate comes. I think. But I would argue this: that the first that. Um, uh, it, introduced into this world that allows for free conscience is the notion of the change of definition for the word liberty. Mm-hmm. So liberty no longer means the freedom to, as Aristotle might have said, live the good life. But 
freedom from any kind of coercion, any, any kind of imp, uh, imposition of will, that the autonomous self, and we've talked about this in the past sessions too, haven't we? Yeah. The autonomous self becomes the highest good. And, that's, and that, uh, that makes freedom no longer freedom from anything that would keep me from doing the good. Mm-hmm. It's freedom from anything that would keep me from doing anything. Right. So suddenly, um, into, the, into the world that assumes uh, that freedom is a good thing, and that it will lead us all into uh, uh, the truth, uh, because the truth will win out if given a fair shake. We think, you know, yeah. uh, the intro- there's the introduction of this idea that freedom really means freedom from coercion or from imposition of will. And any time then anybody says, God says that, that uh, eh, the, the button goes, you know, the, the button is pushed, the, the sirens go off, and it sounds like we're imposing. Uh, the will of Christians on everyone else. You see, right. so persuasion is no longer the name of the game in that plurality. We're not persuading each other to follow the truth. We are uh, we are fighting now uh, a wrong-headed notion of the, the idea of, of uh, freedom. Yeah. But that's just the first thing. The second thing is that it sounds a lot like the. Th- the, the concern that you that you spelled a minute ago was uh, that if we allow for freedom, doesn't that inevitably mean that we are going to have a naked public square because of the plurality of, of belief? Uh, people are going to choose the wrong things, and if they do, they're going to want to not be uh, uh, if bothered by the people who chose something else. So we have to all throw our our uh, beliefs in the back seat of the car and and come out into the front of the car and talk amongst ourselves without all that into what the naked public square. Right. But it sounds to me an awful lot like what God was up against when He actually gave free will to to Adam and Eve to begin with, mm-hmm. because He knew He had to know that if He were going to truly give them freedom to choose rightly and to be obedient, that they could be disobedient. And I think that's what we're up against here, too. It's a kind of a, a grand uh, experiment and hope that when people have freedom, they'll use that freedom to choose the good and not the evil. But people don't do that, do they? Uh, I, so I feel like that, that experiment and the fact that it, I don't know if it didn't seem to work is the right word, but it seems that it's gone a certain way or is slowly going a certain way yeah. is probably at the heart of why some people are questioning the very nature of our political order. I'm thinking, I've mentioned it before, like post-liberalism or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I've even brought up post-liberal thought as a website to go check out because they have interesting ideas on this. Part of their beef with all of it is something akin to that, that the notion of a naked public square is first of all contradictory because there is no such thing. Even the very idea of a public square assumes some sort of liberal dominance of the square, mm-hmm. like some liberalism mm-hmm. dominance of the square and its values and ideas being enforced. Uh, but second of all, that it inevitably, if you try to say that it's based on Christianity, even if it was, inevitably it was going to erode away those principles because logically freedom is going to turn into freedom to do what we want and no constraint. And so right. clearly then what needs to be postulated is a new moral system where moral order is somehow inculcated, more actively inculcated in the social order. Now, there's disagreements on that. 
And he got straight up like integralist, which want a confessional state. They want like you know the Pope to run your state, not the Pope, right. but like right. a, a monarch who is a confessed Christian and tries to make everybody Christian. Right. Two people who have much more nuanced views about it, but there is this this contradiction. I remember back in my wild, youthful college days, <laughs> I wrote a couple of blog posts a couple of weeks ago, right. Yeah, Just yeah, a, a couple of weeks ago, yeah. <laughs> the, I wrote a couple of blog posts, I don't remember the titles, where I think called The End of America. And they were me exploring this issue that if, you know, America is about freedom and freedom is about, you know, the freedom to follow the dictates of my own conscience. What was it? Was it Justice Kennedy who said back in the 90s, I think it was the 90s, uh, the freedom to shape reality as you see fit yes, or to make right, your own reality? Right. If that's what it means, that's what we're living by, then that's not sustainable. Exactly. Like at some point, we're all going, it, it assumes that somehow, in some sort of Foucauldian sense, that we're all just going to follow the dictates of our own isolated conscious, you know, consciences, but they're all going to magically globule together into a beautiful harmony of perfectly, you know, individuated moralities. Yeah. And yeah. it's like, yeah, that's not going to happen. It all. At some point, people's wills are going to get crossed, and then you raise the question of, well, what do we do? What do you do when, from this goes back to what I mentioned earlier, when you have two people who look like they have perfectly legitimate claims? Yeah. When the baker says, you know, don't prohibit my free exercise of religion, and the homosexual couple says, don't you dare establish religion, and you look at it and you're like, I don't know which way to go, mm-hmm. right? That, that kind Solomon of, there. Right? Yeah, being Solomon, I was like, how do you how do you uh, split the baby exactly. <laughs> on that right. on that point? If we could put it right. that way, right. so it's almost. It, I guess the the questions that are being raised now is that the people are seeing these tensions, and some of these tensions are probably a result of things having gone too far down one way, and the questions are like, well, how do you? Okay, Ag Bar. Okay, it's weird for me because I had a teddy bear named Ag, but anyway, <laughs> uh, you know, Attorney General Bar. Okay, fine. You sit there and you ballyhoo something we've heard many a times, maybe not from the Attorney General, but we've heard many times. Almost never from there. Yeah, uh, You've heard many times that we're in moral decline, we need some sort of Christian moral education and moral inculcation and culture back. Uh, Christian principles and ideas are the roots of our stuff and we're moving away from it. Great, fine, whatever. What are we supposed to do about it? Yeah. It seems like... The pendulum, he talked about there are pendulum swings, but there are things that are actively preventing the pendulum from swinging back. You know, that idea right. that, that history moves in like swinging pendulum towards one excess to the other, and there's moments of equilibrium, but it comes back to the other. A classic Western one, uh, the Western civilization, not like Louis L'Amour or something like that, but, uh, <laughs> but that's his name, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah. Um, I apologize to Louis the Moore fans out there. Uh, but like Western civilization is the Apollonian, the Dionysian. There's like a swing towards the Apollonian, the more reasonable and the more rational. But it goes too far and it becomes rationalistic and mechanistic and you know systematic to like a deadening, dull block of cold ice. And at some point, the pendulum swings back towards the Dionysian front, which is more energetic and full of life and spontaneity and creativity and new things and energy and dynamism and stuff. But eventually it goes too far into chaos and anarchy and uh, just pure randomness and absurdity and nihilism. And eventually it has to swing. And there's just that swinging back and forth. However we try to define it, and other cultures may have it, that's kind of a notion that societies go on the swing. And Barr talked about the pendulum swing, but he said that there are forces or things that are actively preventing it. And I don't exactly remember. He mentioned three things that are like actively preventing it. And 
whatever those three things were, it just raises the question of, well, exactly what are we supposed to do about it? Like, what are we supposed to do about the fact that, you know, the whole notion of the free conscience and the public square, uh, the free conscience and the plural public square uh, has gotten away from the idea of freedom being ordered towards the good and has now just gotten towards freedom ordered to your own self-realization. Mm-hmm. And now that that's happening, it's created all these contradictions and tensions where now the government looks like it's taking sides. You know, um, it's one thing to try and maintain the neutral public square. It's another thing when people who are very illiberal and who are very against freedom or individualism know how to speak the language of liberalism and in that way kind of game the system and get their their one viewpoint forced on top of everybody else. Yeah. If that makes sense. And the question is, what do you do about it? And, you know, Hodges... And this is something, having grown up in the circles I've been in, and maybe you can relate if you've been in similar circles at some point, it just feels really doom and gloomy, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, the, the public square is turned towards just pure, this absurdist vision of, like, everybody following their own dictates of their own conscience, and somehow it's going to turn into utopia, which is nonsense. And there's a bunch of illiberal actors, both, you know, uh, drag queen story time, LGBT oh, yeah. activists right. on the one hand, and who knows, I don't know, maybe dirty, secret, christ fascist inter-guerrillist on the other hand, mm-hmm. <laughs> trying to game the system of liberalism to make everybody one way. And in the middle are ordinary folk who the position of just like live and let live or just why should this bother me or whatever just isn't good enough anymore. Yeah. And it can all feel real doom and gloomy. So yeah, I suppose yeah. I, I I know what you mean, but I more and more I think that if the if the problem that you just described is is the way it really is that is that the that the uh, uh, the more pluralistic we become the less we can allow our beliefs to interfere with the public square and for us to hold hold this this sort of uh, dynamism of pluralities. Together, we have to be willing to lay aside various things. Yeah. If, that's, if that's the way it is, and at the same time, that that inevitably leads to away from uh, Christian uh, faith, mm-hmm. then we're, we're sunk. There is some reason for doom and gloom. I don't see that right. there's any way out of it. Right. Unless, <laughs> unless it really is true that a Christian view of things will lead to a greater freedom in that public square than to leave the Christian elements out of it. Mm-hmm. In other words, maybe the, 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 public, the naked public square is an illusion. Mm-hmm. Nobody actually lives in a naked public square. Everybody brings his beliefs. It's just that one guy's belief is that no Christians should be allowed in. Right. <laughs> See, maybe that's the reality. Right. It, what we want, what they will tell you is, oh no, I haven't got anything against Christianity. I just want us all to leave our, you know, our beliefs behind and and uh, work things out in that naked relationship. But but if but what if underneath it all, Barr is right, and there really is a problem, and that the people who are simply against God, frankly. Um, are designing something uh, that that requires that people who are living as Christians uh, have to have to uh, get out of the square, have to leave, have to be excluded, shut up. 
I think you see plenty of evidence uh, on the college campuses today that conservative kinds of positions, positions that that argue from transcendence, are being shouted down. Mm -hmm. Not every campus. It's nowhere near as bad as the the news tells you about and so on because they're always looking for something sensational. But it is happening. Sure. It is happening. So It's almost like the persecution problem again. It's like... It's a little over the top to talk like there's a massive Christian persecution, but we can still point to instances where it feels like something unjust and unfair is happening. If you went onto a college campus today and argued in favor of transgenderism, I don't think anybody would stand up and say, you can't say that here, you've got to leave the campus. Right. Not even necessarily a Christian-grounded college. Might no. They may actually have invited them in right. to hear the discussion. So there is a kind of a weighted... A a one-sidedness. Right. But if you go in there and say, I really think we ought to, um, I thought, (laughs) this would be fun. (laughs) I ought to go on campus and say, you know where we went wrong? It was when we gave the women the vote. (laughs) You know? That would, would you would be shouted down immediately. Nobody would listen to that. For good reason. (laughs) Just want to make that clear. Well, I I mean, we're not in favor (laughs) of that. But what I'm saying is, that's an opinion that, that, you know, if we're talking about really having an, a, a naked public square, yeah. then that opinion ought to be allowed too. See, but it isn't, and so I think it is that if you were to go on campus and say I'm all against transgenderism, then you might find yourself being shouted down too. Mm-hmm. So there is a kind of a weighted public square. And what I'm trying to say is, it could very well be that we that nobody actually has a naked public square nobody thinks in terms of leaving their opinions their beliefs behind and and because opinions and beliefs go together we've talked many times about how politics actually is downstream from culture well culture is downstream from beliefs mm-hmm. so your beliefs go directly into the culture that's how the culture gets established and from the culture the the beliefs of the culture and so on uh, lead to uh, who we elect or what uh, law we're going to stand for or what we want for our taxes to do or whatever on the political end. Uh, so that means that those things are really not disconnectable. Right. And I think that the surgical removal of beliefs from culture is, uh, well, it's good. the culture's going to bleed to death. You have to actually cut off. You have to do something unnatural. Yeah. Uh, to do that. So maybe what Barr is doing here is something that's really worthwhile. That is to say, I'm not here to say everyone here has to become a Christian or that the only religion that we will allow in our country is is Christianity or Catholicism in his case because he spoke specifically about Catholicism. Mm-hmm. He's not saying that, but he is saying this, this line uh, that we've mentioned before, basically that uh, without internal uh, restraint, there's not enough laws in the world yeah. that can stop the, the onslaught of, of chaos. Yeah. I was reading uh, Samuel Johnson the other day, and he said almost exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. That is, it seems that, I won't quote him exactly, but it's some, something like this, that all of the laws of heaven and man put together can't stop uh, the, the, uh, the sinfulness of man. Right. It can't be done. Right. You can't write the laws specific enough to, to curb every, every one of those things. Right. So maybe Barr is actually speaking not specifically about Christianity or about religion, but about reality on a, on a human scale that everybody should know that if it isn't for internal uh, limits, we will have chaos. 
right? Well, then we can debate. We could have a we could have a persuasive dialogue about which religion maybe makes the most sense and so on. But then that's a different argument than to say, no, we don't want any religion at all. We're perfectly happy with the the sort of legalistic approach to to controlling things. Yeah. But the wise man says that that relying purely on the legality the external forces to to restrain evil in the world leads inevitably to either chaos or tyranny and eventually it's never and it's not going to be chaos <laughs> it's going to be tyranny nobody is going to put up with chaos nobody i don't care what you believe mm-hmm. so the the, the 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 what happens is you get closer and closer and closer to chaos and then some strong man comes along and says i can fix it yeah. if you'll just give me all the power and he becomes the tyrant and and everybody says, please do. I mean, that's how Hitler got to be yeah. in charge, basically. So a lot of, I like mostly coming to be in charge. Yeah, yeah. I don't get doom or gloomy either, um, mainly for two reasons. One is that it feels like, for some reason, I can only assume it's because a Maltov, a orange-skinned, blonde-haired Maltov cocktail named Trump, kind of <laughs> exploded whatever nice glaze of nicety we had over all these things and just sort of exposed all these tensions and all mm-hmm. these sort of aggravations and just let them out into the open. I mean, the at corruptions. Least, you know, all the corruptions, yeah. too. And just sort of let them come out and breathe, and finally they're all just uh, you know, out in the open wrestling with each other. And I think that's a good thing because these things can be articulated and talked about. Uh, it, it's almost weird. It's like to look at like the screaming on campuses or the shoutdown or cancel culture or Twitter mob. It's almost good to let the crazies have their day. Mm-hmm. If for no other reason than everybody else made in the image of God who's a little more ordinary will look at that and go like, okay, whatever that is, I don't want it. Okay. Right. I, I felt like I said that it was almost like that joke about, you know, in a debate, one person says something and the other one responds by, I shall forfeit all my time to my opponent because what they said was so stupid that they're basically just arguing <laughs> right. with themselves. I said that I almost feel like, I, I think this was in the context of I read a, you know, earlier this year, I read an article uh, that was just a throwaway article, but it got me so mad. I just couldn't help myself trying to explain why the Lion King is fascist. Oh, yeah. And it, 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 it reinscribes and is complicit in fascist ideology or something like that. And I remember reading just a week or so ago, or, or hearing about it, couldn't get access to it, but I was hearing about it, read the abstract for an article that was trying to argue how SpongeBob SquarePants was complicit in American imperialism. And it's because, like, it shows, like, the island where the nuclear bombs were exploded or something. Oh, the Bikini, bikini Atoll. Yeah, yeah, the Bikini Atoll. Right, right. It was like... Right. It was like Oh my. And I remember sitting there, and there's probably all kinds of deep into the weeds, thorny argumentation you can make about how, you know, is simply noting the island exists, and that's it. Is that enough to make you complicit in, like, the removal of a native? I, there's all right. kinds of high-in-the-weeds argument. Right. But there was another thing that came to my mind, namely that if our opposition are the people who want to basically denigrate and take away the Lion King and SpongeBob SquarePants, then maybe all we need to do is just sit back and let the crazies talk. Mm -hmm. Okay, because if ordinary people, even ordinary people on the left of the political spectrum, even they say it's insane, like it's absolutely crazy. So one way not to get doomy or gloomy about it is to think that it's good that all this stuff is being expressed. It's good that there are people rising up to speak about it. I feel like people are getting more interested in, well, articulating themselves, articulating. Yes. So there's an opening of, to speak this stuff, and there's 
uh, abilities for the crazies to finally show how crazy they are, and then the rest of us go, yeah, we don't want that, whatever that is. Right. So now, now it's all out in the open. It's like in Winter Soldier, Captain America you know, just found out that Hydra had been working behind the scenes the whole time after he got frozen. Oh, yeah. And, but he seems pretty chummy about it, and Black Widow asked him, like, you seem you know, pretty okay for a guy who just realized his entire effort in the war was, like, for nothing. And Cap just kind of shrugs and says, I guess, I just, I guess I'm just glad to know who I'm fighting. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like that. It's like, finally, let's get some clarity, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So that's a good thing. But the second thing is, is I don't think, and this ties into the people who said that, you know, uh, the social media is not real life. You know, yeah. that yeah. it's maybe like a million people, and of that million people, maybe 1% have like the top check marks. And of those, maybe 1% of that 1% are the loudest and make all the big noise. Mm-hmm. So it's not, it's not real life. Mm-hmm. It's connected to that in that, you know, there are awful things happening on certain college campuses that get a lot of attention. I think there's a lot of other good stuff happening on other college campuses in response. And I also think not all the kids are all ubiquitous. You know, I yeah. think this attitude yeah. that our kids are, they're communist factories and they're all becoming communist. I remember someone made a documentary about like the snowflake culture that was rising up in campuses. Mm-hmm. And there was a big chunk of it that was based on like random footage and cell phone footage from students catching these moments of awful, you know, shout downs and obnoxious juvenile behavior. And I remember one distinctly was, I don't know what was going on, but it was in some kind of uh, auditorium, all right? And there was some girl in the back who was displaying her displeasure at some kind of at something, imperialist, patriarchal, conservative, whatever, by just having an absolute one-year-old temper tantrum. Uh-huh. And, and I mean, she was just like flailing and, feet and screaming. And, yeah. it was just, and she wouldn't stop. Mm-hmm. And this camera is catching in. And of course, the music is really ominous. You know, like, <laughs> you know, like this is our campuses now. But what I caught is the cameras on her, but then it like pans over just a little bit, and you realize it's a cell phone camera, mm-hmm. and it's the cell phone of this girl, few rows up, who heard this, started filming it, and then it pans back to herself, and she has this look on her face of like, mm-hmm. like. What is that? Like, she looks bewildered <laughs> that what the heck's going on behind her. And she's the same age. Yeah, right. And I'm like, why aren't we talking about those kids? Yeah. Like, sure. the ones who actually look at it and they recognize it's crazy. Yeah. Like, this is, look, I don't know what I believe yet because I'm trying to figure it all out. But that over, the, that's what I mean by let the crazies talk. Sure. All right? Let them, let the weird lady get up at AOC's town hall and say, we need to start killing all the babies in order to say, well, let it happen because maybe then we'll better reject it when we actually, okay, okay, there's a boundary line. Whatever Mm. those people are, no. (laughs) Like that. So maybe the craziness being louder is actually not such a bad thing. And I think there may be more, what's the word, sane people out there. There's one last thing, and then I'll uh, uh, hand it over to you. It reminds me of uh, G.K. Chesterton. Who? Who? I, you know, it's a uh, indie. He's an independent French auteur author. You never heard of him. Oh, okay. Is, is his name is like Chester Tun, and the Tun is spelled like with O T U N A U X N or something. But Chesterton, this is what his novel. This is one of the main themes of his novel, the the man who was Thursday. Oh yes. Right. If you haven't read it, I'm about to spoil, sort of spoil something. So, sorry, not sorry, but the main detective like infiltrates this gang of like anarchist nihilist and the whole time he feels he's alone 
But the central conceit of the story is every time he kind of has like a sort of adventure or moment with one of the other anarchists, it gets revealed that they're actually a police detective in disguise as well. Uh-huh. And then he finds the third one, and it turns out they're a police detective, and they keep going and winds up all six of them were all police detectives mm-hmm. who had infiltrated at the same time. And the, it's a joke, but the joke is like, but the profound part about the joke is that maybe you're not as alone as you think you are. Right. Like there's a whole chapter called The Whole World and Anarchy where the final like, Five think, well, we know who the sixth guy is who's working for Sunday, that he's like, you know, really bad. He's the true anarchist. And then they start getting chased by all the townsfolk and they go through this sequence of, I can't believe the Miller would be a dirty dynamite throwing at And here comes the Miller chasing after them. And <laughs> like, well, at least the barman, the barman's a man of like real common sense. And here comes the barman chasing mm-hmm. after And they just, the whole town starts chasing after them. They're like, I guess we're the last sane people left. And they get to the edge of the beach. And, you know, the final anarchist comes up to him and they, like, shake their fist at him. Like, you'll never defeat the world in anarchy. And the final anarchist is like, me defeat the world in anarchy. And he pulls out his badge. He's like, I'm placing you under arrest as anarchy. <laughs> and the realization that everybody was actually not what they thought they were. Yeah, Maybe yeah. there's more sane people uh-huh. out there than there are the crazy ones. Well, I would like to think that. I would certainly like to think sane that. Sane with uh, qualifiers, of course. And I, I think, uh, you know, you were talking about optimism about... The about that and not being so so doom and gloomy about it, uh, but that sounds like the same pendulum argument that maybe sure. if we leave the crazies to speak, then maybe everyone will see clearly and the pendulum will start coming back a little bit. We need uh, people um, speaking back to them, but we shouldn't be so utterly, um, I don't know, despairing inside when they get a chance to talk. Right. If I put it right. That way. Right. Yeah, I don't think that the people. I don't think people in favor of free speech are as afraid of the free speech of others as the people who are opposed to free speech, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so uh, yeah, the, the right is, inter- is, is more willing to hear the left out than the left is willing to hear the right, I think. But never mind. Um, what I was thinking about is that question about the pendulum swinging, and I thought I found the bit in Barr's speech that, uh, he, where he mentioned the three things you were talking about that, that actually make it more difficult for the pendulum to swing back today than in past times. And we could debate these, I think, with our friends around. Um, and ask our listeners to uh, to tell us what they think of these three. Yes. But I thought, for the for the sake of our uh, listeners, let me put these out. He says, "But today we're facing something different that may mean that we cannot count on the pendulum swinging back." And he f- says, "There's th- three things in particular. First is the force, fervor, and comp- comprehensiveness of the assault on religion." That we're experiencing today. And this is where he says, this is not decay, it is organized destruction. Mm-hmm. So we've talked about that a little bit. And the, the opposition says, well, you're, you're exaggerating the opposition. You're exaggerating so, the hostility. You know, but it's hard to, it's hard to deny, deny the, uh, the, the, the erosion of in public, in public square, in, in uh, entertainment, in journalism, in the university, uh, and in politics. Uh, the erosion of uh, of morality, frankly. Um, the per- the second thing was the pervasiveness and power of our high tech popular culture fuse- fuels apostasy in another way. He says it's the unprecedented degree of distraction that we have today. Right. That's a little different too. It could be that in the past we have been easily distracted. T. S. Eliot talked about our being distracted by distraction from distraction. Right. Um, Social media definitely fuels but, it, but it's probably not its creator. No, indeed. No, it's in fact, it's probably the fruit of a desire for that. Yeah. But, 
But anyway, that's another aspect of it that he says is difficult. And then there is a modern phenomenon that suppresses society's self-corrosive mechanisms uh, that makes it harder for society to restore itself. In the past, when societies are threatened by moral chaos, the overall social costs of licentiousness and irresponsible personal conduct become so high that society ultimately recoils and reevaluates the path that it's on, which is, I think, what you were kind of saying. If we just let the crazies talk, maybe people will realize just how nuts that is and will pull back from it. But today, he says, in the face of all the increasing pathologies, instead of addressing the underlying causes of the problems, we have the state in the role of alleviator of bad consequences. That's different than in the past. We call, this is quoting again, we call on the state to mitigate the social costs of personal misconduct and irresponsibility. And he gives some examples. Uh, So the reaction to growing illegitimacy is not sexual responsibility, but abortion. The reaction to drug addiction is safe injection sites. The solution to the breakdown of the family is for the state to set itself up as an ersatz husband for single mothers and an ersatz father for their children. So... Instead of having a naked public square where we even discuss whether or not we should listen to God, one of the things that we could discuss in a naked public square if it were truly uh, free, mm-hmm. um, we have assumed on the front end that there is no God and that that God has not established uh, the family to look after itself that way uh, and and insisted that instead of trying to regain an understanding of the family that comes from Christian perspective we uh, we inst- we instate the state we put the state in as a uh, as he says ersatz uh, fake uh, father or fake uh, husband mm-hmm. And in doing so, we've actually closed the door on the pendulum swinging back. Do you see? It's yeah. not just that we're, we're offering an alternative. We're, we're making the choice to close the door on that kind of approach, and we're stuck with whatever's left. And right. the, the pendulum can't penetrate that. Right. So in sum, the three things that are preventing any kind of – that seem to stand against the pendulum swing is the first one is the hostility, an open hostility, an organized hostility towards – religious faith, mainly right. Christian religious faith. Um, the second one is our innate distractibility is ex- um, aggravated by social media technology. It's too easy for us to sort of ignore it. Right. And the third one is that whereas in the past the consequences of moral decay and collapse could be more acutely felt and thus we would backpedal the state actually tries to step in and mitigate consequences so we don't feel it as bad, which seems like another version of the – it's not the same thing, but it's like a similar principle to the distraction thing. Right. We don't feel the yeah, punch. it's very similar. We don't feel the punch, and therefore we don't feel the need to do anything about it. But, and it comes from the desire, actually, to offer an alternative to what the Christian view would be, right? Let's, we still agree that there's a problem there, but we think we can solve it this way. We can solve it a different way. All right. Well, those three things, if anybody out there has any thoughts on it, yeah. uh, questions or comments that you want to ask about it, do you think Barr's right? Do you think he's wrong? Do you think that the claim of Christian persecution in America is overblown or is it underblown? Or do you think that's the right word? Do you think it should be a better word? Um, is social media distracting us as bad or is it opening up new forms of communication? Is 
the state stepping in, causing the mitigation of moral uh, decay from being uh, mitigating moral decay from being felt. We want to hear from you. Feel free to email us at uh, director at centerws.com. That's D I R E C T O R at C E N T E R W S dot com. I put in the subject line um, this the uh, title of this podcast, and we'll hopefully hear from you and get some uh, conversation going of what you have to say. We would, uh, we'd certainly any, love to hear from you. Is there anything else you want to add, or should we head on we, to recommendations? Why don't we go to recommendations? Okay, so it goes without saying, both of us recommend, if you haven't heard uh, Attorney General Barr's speech, uh, definitely go check it out. We'll have a link to both the transcript of the speech, which Hodges has been referencing throughout the podcast, and a link to actual video footage, because this was a speech he gave at the Notre Dame Law School, if I remember correctly. Uh, So we both will recommend that. As far as other more specific recommendations, what is on your mind? Well, I think it might be wise to read uh, contrary opinions Yes. Uh, about this. So maybe that's the best thing to recommend today. Okay. Uh, I think the, um, the uh, AmericanConservative.com uh, piece is very helpful in favor. It was written by a fellow called Rod Dreher, you probably uh, know. Yeah, the Benedict Option. Benedict guy. Option fellow. I, I find, found it very helpful. Uh, on the other hand, uh, there, are, there is a um, piece by um, yeah. Jeffrey Tubin. A bit bombastic, uh, but he raises some issues, people who are – some of the fundamental issues of people who would be against it are in there. That's right. That's right. And there are specifically – there is a kind of debate amongst even Catholics specifically about uh, Barr and his approach. The kind of more left-leaning Catholics, uh, social justice Catholics can be read in the, uh, in the Catholic National Reporter. But I'm told from my Catholic friends that there are uh, others – in the Catholic uh, publishing world, that would give more uh, positive spins on his on his speech. So I'd I'd advise that we actually read the Catholics themselves on Barr because he was speaking specifically as a Catholic. Uh, but those would those would cover it a little bit. There there are loads of others, obviously, mm-hmm. but uh, those would start uh, the the conversation. All right. So I just recommend you read up on it, especially with oppositional viewpoints. This is what I'm going to recommend. Wherever you are, especially if it's a beautiful day, I'm going to recommend that you go outside. <laughs> All right? Just go outside. I have found that when the sort of doomy gloomies come over because of what you think about how the socio-political discourse is going and how our public discourse is going, I found that you know, going to my local Kroger and just walking amongst ordinary people is a nice corrective to that or a counterpunch to that. It's very wise. Sometimes walking out in the woods on a sunny day and realizing that this is your father's world uh, is often much more helpful. So I would recommend, my recommendation for you is if you get down on the doomy gloomies with this, my recommendation is to get out and go for a walk. Definitely, you know, out in nature, but definitely just go somewhere ordinary. Mm. You know, where ordinary people are doing ordinary things and take a breath. Mm-hmm. And that's all I have. Helps helps uh, give perspective, doesn't it? It does. Right. Well, we thank you for joining us. This has been From the Center, and we will catch you next time. Hope you have a great week. Okay.